1: your calling? Do you long to witness and support the awesome power of women as we make life, form kinship, and transform the world through undisturbed, mother-centered birth? In your most expansive vision of your life, are you the authentic midwife of your community, walking in total grace, reciprocity, and trust with women through the sacred portal of pregnancy and birth? Then our groundbreaking Radical Birth Keeper School is for you. It's an immersive and intensive fast-paced live program in all things authentic midwifery and self-mastery that will give you the blueprint and guidance to launch a life-altering, world-shaking, radical birth brand and business. Think birth business mastermind life-changing coaching intensive deep dive into all things birth step-by-step roadmap for serving women authentically and the wise woman initiation that you have been dreaming of all rolled into one epic program that will change your entire life it is time to become the lighthouse that guides women home to themselves head over to radicalbirthkeeperschool.com and grab your spot because we are enrolling now and we always sell out. Say yes to your calling and join us in this revolution of bringing birth back home. www.radicalbirthkeeperschool.com. Felicity is a formerly registered midwife with the National Health Service, the NHS, the publicly funded healthcare system in England. She had wanted to be a mother ever since she was a little girl and midwifery seemed like the most aligned career for her, until she woke up to the reality that she was assisting in the violence and sabotage of mothers and babies in birth by attending them in the hospital. In this episode, we discuss the brainwashing that took place in her schooling and in her training the toll medical midwifery took on her spirit and her life now as a radical birth keeper graduate after surrendering her license and starting a business attending births fully outside of the medical system. Felicity! Hello! Okay, (laughs) so my first question for you right off the bat as I drink from my Matriarch Rising Festival mug. Oh, yeah. Are you or are you not coming back to the festival this summer? (laughs) Oh,
2: what a question. I mean, I absolutely uh wilted like an English flower in the heat this year and I think I got heat stroke on day two so if I can get over my heat of that and accept oh, that electrolytes are a thing um then yes then I'll come if I'm better prepared
1: okay so you say that but I also remember you dancing your ass off on the last night <laughs> I believe with no clothes on <laughs> You clearly recovered nicely. Oh,
2: you remember that? Yeah, I did do that. <laughs> that was well, the most epic thing ever.
1: You and know, why, it, yeah. part of why I remember that, I remember it, is because we had to edit the naked women out of so many <laughs> of the pictures. Oh, no, am I just right at the front? <laughs> There's one. It's amazing. I. It's actually really beautiful. It's of um, Angel Hannah dancing with a candle and then you can't really you can tell that you're naked but it's kind of blurry it's beautiful but I still would imagine you probably wouldn't want me to have posted it sure but you can send
2: that my way yeah that was that was amazing and I think I remember you giving permission where you were like if you've ever wanted to dance naked outside under the stars this is literally your moment and I was like this is literally my moment and I remember jumping up and down and taking my dress off and every all the sisters were like (laughs) (laughs) "Yeah!" no it was so powerful no that was that was an incredible that was a core memory right there
1: okay so what I'm hearing is yes you'll come but we need to better prepare you (laughs) for the heat okay well that's good we're gonna have a lot of
2: survival skills
1: yeah and we're gonna have more like shady chill areas oh and I'll just announce it now because I want you to come so badly we I have decided to relocate where the dome is gonna go and it's gonna be (gasps) air-conditioned oh luxury yeah there will be much more what's the right word there will be more places to like recoup from the
2: amazing the English flower is very happy with that (laughs)
1: Oh, that's sad. Okay, but you totally rallied because every time I saw you, you had a shit eating grin on your face.
2: Of, like, doing something <laughs> I did funny. rally. I was like, I am, I am here still. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Yeah, it was amazing.
1: So I'm excited to have you on today. I adore mm-hmm. you. I loved having you in the school Aww. and you were someone that, you know, from the moment that we talked, which was before you did the school, mm. I just wanted to keep tabs on your journey because you got into birth work and became an NHS midwife in England. And then as you're going to tell today, after quite a few years, threw yeah. it to the curb, quit, retired, mm. and took the Radical Birthkeeper School and have just done a full 180 pivot into authentic birth work. And you've now Uh, attended three births outside the system, which towards the end of the episode, we'll get into whatever you want to share about those births. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the intention of this episode today is I want to do a little whistleblowing on NHS and kind of hear from the inside and then really highlight, you know, your choice to pivot to more authentic work and how, how that has created the woman you are today which is Mm. on fire wild Ah! (laughs) (laughs) excited
2: I'm excited to talk about it
1: so let's just start at the beginning what what brings you into midwifery medical midwifery Mm. is that like right out of the gates of college? Is it like, I just have to pick a career or are you like super drawn to birth? Like, who are you when you start? I'm assuming you started right away with going to school and yeah, just kind of encapsulate your journey for us of how you even become an NHS medical midwife.
2: Hmm. So I was actually in the middle of doing a psychology degree. I'd had a very, you know, as most of us do, linear education style. And it, it was you know, you have to get a university degree. We, this is from my phone. You know, we don't care what it's in, but go for it. So I was like, fine. I had no direction. So that was fine with me. And then it was halfway through and I was thinking, no, this isn't what I want to do. And I was talking to one of my oldest friends who I've been friends with since I was five years old and she had changed her degree and she was training to be a medical midwife. Now I had, I knew how <laughs> I knew how babies came into the world, but I never known that it was a profession, that that was a thing that people did, you know, supporting women giving birth. And it immediately when she was describing, um, obviously not the harsher things about it, but when she was describing the things she loved about the training, I just felt like, oh my gosh, this is it. I want to work with women. And I remember writing in my application form actually, there was, even though I'd never grown up with kind of considering my ancestry or the spiritual connection between women, I was like, this is the thing that links every woman across the globe. And it links every woman that's ever come before us. And I remember writing that the enormity of that and the incredible opportunity to be a part of that was so strong and so that was the drive and I just went for it and I did very little research I had no idea that there were other ways to be in birth than Mm. this and if I am totally honest with myself even at that young age of 20 there were a lot of things about the profession that appealed to me It was a recognized profession. There's definitely a a social status about being in the NHS. You're you're definitely, you are a hero. You are, and as we talked about in the school, that is a role that I identify very easily with. (laughs) Most women do. Yes, exactly. And it was a, it's a solid job good pension, Mm -hmm. you have to do something pretty insane to ever be fired from the NHS. So there were a lot of elements to the status that that profession appeals that also fitted perfectly with what I thought you needed in adult life.
1: True, you know, in in registered midwifery across the across the planet, right? That's, Mm. that's ultimately how midwives here in America um, wound up agreeing to become licensed when they weren't you know in the 70s and 80s as this rolled out was it was it felt safe and secure it legitimizes their profession it creates bridges with other medical you know providers yeah, yeah I think that's that's Absolutely. Really understandable yeah yeah
2: so I when I applied I it's so fascinating <laughs> I had this thing that I was like I want to have the toughest training possible I want to go to the biggest craziest hospital in London and I want to have training that's going to prepare me to work anywhere and i was fixated on this and sure enough i got into a london university and sure enough i went to and had did my training at the craziest hospital i have yet to hear about so i think at the time it was the largest maternity unit in europe so the sheer volume yeah. and the complexities within the population of women the i think it was the scale of the industrialness of it I didn't recognize it as industry at the time, but it it was going to be the thing that pushed me the most mm-hmm. and there was also this thing about oh I'm in the East End of London there was again I don't know if you guys have called the Midwife over there there was a big hype at that time of this is where that's set and you know all that jazz and it was it was the most horrifying. Horrifying three years. Actually, when when I think back on it now, and I talk me and my fellow friends who trained at that hospital, we almost can't. We talk about it, but we almost can't believe it in terms of the things we saw. And the thing about the midwifery degree in England is, uh, and it's probably the same everywhere else, is you spend a portion of your time this university, it was 40% of your time at university and 60% of your time working full time in a hospital alongside midwives. And because you had that split, you had this interesting thing where you would go into your placement and you'd, you'd, you'd witness these really extreme intense scenarios, and then you'd have a university break. And that would almost like replenish you and make you go, oh, it's okay, actually. Um, um you know I have hope um but then you go back in and it almost dulled the experience of it that's probably it's probably a strange way to describe it but you would hmm.
1: see some high risk case like you would see some perceived emergency and then go into academia and like the indoctrination would like would would soften or intellectualize what you saw Exactly. But
2: also, interestingly, the intellectual intellectualization of it was, you know, we were never lied to by our lecturers that there were issues with women's rights in in the maternity system. But the indoctrination of it was that we were going to be the group to change it. Course. we were the cohort we were the group of women that were going to make birth so much we were part of the change yeah. and it made going into those environments it made that psychology with me anyway of being like I'm gonna keep going and I'm gonna qualify and I'm not gonna do that and I'm gonna make it better I and mean we really of, believed it
1: everyone does right yeah. like this is a huge part of of the new course that comes with this Springs round of the RBK school, the, the foundations of authentic midwifery. There's a whole part Yolanda wrote about exactly this, that the system actually requires that way of thinking to keep it alive. Right. And so nobody that enters industrial birth thinks that it's a perfect system. They mostly think that they're going to help it be better. Right, absolutely, and, and at every angle, from doctors to anesthesiologists to nurses to medwives to even doulas, it it requires that to enable the very system that everyone thinks they're here to fix. It's it's really fascinating.
2: Yeah, and the things that I witnessed, uh, and I know you you saw it a lot with the work you did as well, is obviously the more obvious abuse, you know, through instrumental births, epediotomy, unnecessary C-sections, things like that. But it it was the coercion and then the kind of removal of women being the authority of their bodies. And I was thinking to myself, you know, knowing that we're going to chat today, and I was thinking, okay, well, what instances stick out in my mind from this training that really affected me as well was, you know, I and I got quite emotional thinking about it, but an example of a, a woman having her first baby and forceps being applied to her baby's head inside her while she's literally screaming no and screaming stop. And, and, and there being actually no clinical indication, you know, the baby's life wasn't at risk. And I remember saying to the midwife who was her primary care at the time, like, but the CTG's fine, the, the the heart rate monitor, which we know is inaccurate anyway, but the monitor's fine. And the midwife, for whatever reason, exhaustion, apathy, whatever, shrugged her shoulders. And this woman actually had an had an acute psychotic episode almost immediately after her baby was born. And she just she went into such survival mode that she just disappeared from the room and i mean that's one of the most extreme versions that i've come across but i could name so many you know the someone saying no to an epidural and three four doctors coming in at different t- intervals to tell her why that's so
1: dangerous and she needs to do it or um <laughs> dangerous to not get jabbed in the spinal column with drugs yeah, yeah it's so nuts. Nice. yeah uh,
2: that and when you're a student as well, you you often don't have the language. And it's you know, in a in a sense it's not your responsibility. Arguably, yes, it is because you're a human being, but the power dynamics are so not in your favour that it's almost impossible to say anything. And it would and be those, and those, it would, it would. And and the students that did say something were villainized and alienated and moved on to different placements. Midwives would refuse to work with them.
1: There you go. <laughs> I mean, this, is, this is a true hazing process into a cult you know it, it 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 really is it is a hazing initiation and if you are brainwashed properly indoctrinated properly and performed properly you will move up in the cult and if you don't you're exiled
2: hmm. and again I mean do you, you don't ever say caveats like there are some midwives who are really trying, <laughs> you know, I'm, so, uh, you're so far in your journey. I am very fresh from leaving this and you're there. I'm there going, yeah, but they had a really well-established birth center and they had a home birth team. And I saw some amazing, but it's that thing of like, I saw some amazing births, but I look back at those births and I'm like, oh, we still broke our waters.
1: Mm, was it so we amazing? St-
2: we still did vaginal examinations.
1: We still, examinations. We yeah,
2: still yeah, did yeah. episiotomy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I hear you. And and that's, you know, a lot of people are still kind of at that first, like, but, but, oh God, it's really uncomfortable to blame the whole system and critique this. But you know, when I'm, when I'm two things, first I'm critiquing a system, not necessarily any person, you know, I, I think that most people that get into this industry think they have good intention do I agree with that? Is that how it pans out? You know, that's a conversation for another day, I guess, but also, you know, this whole idea that like good people do bad things and, you know, people often will say things like, God, you talk about it. Like it's evil. Like it's just evil. And it's like, well, y- yeah, yes. yes. <laughs> I don't know what else to call it. If, yeah. if, you know, if this is an industry that is literally predicated on abusing mothers and their children and acting like it's good for them, I would call yeah. that evil. So does that mean I think you're evil because you were a part of it for years? Of course not. Of course not. I think you you are a part of the same culture I am, which set you up to be um, a hero in the birth industry. You know, but but right. So it's it is an interesting thing that comes up for you around that because I think this is why this podcast is so triggering and why so many people find what I say so extreme and yet you and I have both spent years watching from inside the system in different ways yeah. and I can think of births that as a doula I thought were beautiful and when I break them down she got so fucking lucky yeah that's really what
2: yeah happened. that's the thing and my friends close friend, what whoever who describe births without intervention it's a real thank god you were you were lucky enough that you hit the boxes and you hit the tick boxes and time was on your side right. and you had this really empowering experience
1: but yeah right like it's russian roulette so is it mm. so beautiful like yeah one woman just got lucky and then in her next birth she she doesn't i mean i yeah. i do with women all the time who Have fine hospital births, and then they have one where it's not fine. And they're like, oh my God, what happened? It's like, well, you got unlucky that time. Your birth took too long, or like you said, it didn't tick the boxes. And now you've experienced what you know is abuse because the last two went fine. Yeah.
2: And And it's it's that I think a phrase that either you or Yo said, I can't remember where I heard it from, but birth under threat of violence. And that really stood out for me because how many births have I been at where it's right, you've got 15 minutes,
3: mm-hmm.
2: otherwise, we're getting the forceps or we're going to C section or I'm giving you this drug and or I'm breaking even I'm breaking your waters or we're moving to the labor ward. It's yeah, yeah it's birth under threat of violence. It's either Wild. under
1: threat or with violence right like exactly and, exactly I mean I've attended more births than I can count as a doula where women birthed their babies while the episiotomy sit- scissors sat at their perineum mm. meaning that the doctor was like two minutes until I cut you know yeah I mean, and, and, and
2: it's that they think that that's like it's motivation
1: it is motivation. It it's is the motivation. most toxic, <laughs> abusive, yeah. disgusting motivation yeah. out there. My mom just told me that in her first birth, my older sister, that she was wheeled into the OR and you know, there's a big clock there. And they said, mm-hmm. you have 15 minutes before we drug and cut you. And, and she did it and she got the baby out and she just told us that. And my sister and I like, welled up with tears and we were like, Oh my God so sorry mm. what, what a horrific way to bring your firstborn here you know yeah. and, and but that's
2: seen as success that's seen as oh see I went in and motivated her and the birth yeah. is done the birth is over well, yeah and and this place where I trained as well though it wasn't just what was happening to the women there was it was there were also elements within the culture of the staff that were wild like I remember a conversation between an obstetrician and a few midwives of um, they knew in their community of a woman whose husband had gone to prison for raping her. And one of them, and they were what they were laughing about and talking about was that they were like, but she's his wife. How can it be rape? That's her duty as a wife. And just, it just was, it was so, it was so deep, there was no, well, you know, of course, they're not going to respect a woman saying yes or no to something. It was, Mm -hmm. yeah, it was wild, but I guess the trouble with my experiences there is that I convinced myself that the issues I was seeing were based only in that hospital, that it was that hospital, that group of staff, that population of women. Um, and if I left, right. if I went somewhere that was totally the opposite, I wouldn't have, there wouldn't be these issues. So I qualified and then I, you know, I got through the training because I'm not a quitter. And even though I had moments of like, I don't want to do this. No, 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 you've committed. This is your second degree. You have to go for it.
1: And I've heard this from all mm. sorts of, you know, medical midwives that it's it's interesting, like, what's the thing that they make up to rationalize and justify being a part of what is obviously a super abusive system that they are literally asking to be trained in, right? Mm. And, and the many like mental gymnastics that it asks of of, you know, women and men being a part of it so that they can go home and sleep at night. Right, and so for you, it's it's only this place. So I'm going to get out of here. I'll finish my training. I'm going to get out of here and go find a better place. Right? Yeah. And yes. so, spoiler alert. Do you, <laughs> do you find this unicorn? Do I find very please utopia?
2: <laughs> um, uh, Funny enough, no. Uh, but just to give that a little bit more detail and context. So I went to a hospital that was much smaller, more rural area, a coastal area, uh, much smaller team. The It's interesting, as, and I know it's such a huge topic, but it's interesting as well that in that community in London, I attributed a lot of the violence and, and, and culture within staff to certain cultures of the world because those staff were majority Nigerian, West African, and I, you know, having not explored my own um, taught racism inside myself, I was like, it's going to be different in a white community, you know, it's wrong, but that's the honest truth. I was like, right, okay, so this area was, you know, middle class to upper class, white women, um, majority, good
1: level of education, there's going to be an assumption on your, on your behalf that women aren't being abused there.
3: Yeah. And what was,
2: you know, it, it showed me the different forms of violence, I guess, in the sense that where I had trained was so blatant. Whereas in this environment, it was, more insidious, I felt, and more subtle. You know, uh, me caring for a woman who's laboring, and the midwife in charge walking into the room already with gloves on and already with an amni hook to break the waters ready in her hands to pass to me. Not a discussion, not a consent. It was a this is what's going to happen. And also, what I found fascinating was. Manipulation with communication was better. So, yes, these women had a higher level of education, were more clued up about their rights. But I found, I, I feel like I observed very skilled communication from whether that be obstetricians or senior midwives, of framing everything as choice when actually it wasn't, you know, or that we want to respect absolutely you know everything that you want to do you know but this it does you know it does have stillbirth risks and it does and we want you to be safe and we want to work with you and i appreciate that lots of women felt uh, more listened to than in the previous environment i'd been in but it wasn't empowerment it was manipulation on a different level. You couldn't just say to this group of women, no, you're not, I mean, you could lots of people did, but <laughs> no, you can't. You're not allowed to do that. They go, but I know I have the right not to. Okay, so let's talk about that. And women who'd want home births and somehow these conversations would mean they birthed on the birth center, which was right next to the labor ward You know, this real yeah it was a, it was a very different tactic, but it was still there for sure. And again, I convinced myself, uh, it's the labor ward. And in the UK, when you qualify, you have to do a preceptorship year, which is kind of like teacher training where you're qualified, but you have to have closer mentoring. You have to get signed off on certain skills before you do them independently. So it's meant to be a, a closer support system but you have to do certain placements, which include the labor ward. So again, I convinced, and I experienced quite bad, maybe people listening to this who I used to work with will be shocked, but I experienced quite bad bullying as well towards myself within that staff. There was a very, yeah, not supportive culture anyway. So I was like, okay, as soon as this preceptorship year is over, I'm out of here. I'm in the community looking after pregnant women, post postpartum women and home birth and I was obsessed with home birth already at that point
1: point. and why do you think that was
2: well uh, even my dissertation uh, the three years I trained in London I didn't see a single home birth and but my dissertation was on it midwives attitudes towards it and I was fascinated by it and there was something really strong in me that was like this is where women should be giving birth. This is, you know, where I am now. This is not the place where women should be.
1: So you went through the system and all of this hazing in these environments you knew were wrong to get to the place where you really wanted to be, which was supporting women to birth at home. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And I was so much happier in that setting. But looking back on the four and a half years that I was qualified, what's interesting is that I would be happy in that I would be content. And then every six to nine months, I would become really discontented. Something wasn't right. And I wasn't happy. And I become miserable. And every time I would go, okay, okay, Maybe it's the team I'm working with. Maybe it's that individual. Maybe it's the type of work I'm doing. So I would move teams or I would move departments. I spent some time in a continuity of care team, which was, it still is technically, but COVID kind of scuppered it. But this principle that the NHS was trying to introduce where women are attended at their births by midwives who they've met. uh, Only once. I know, I know. You only have to meet them once, but it still counts. Um, so I was part of that model, which was framed as like or that was framed as authentic midwifery. This is of how course. midwifery should be, you know. And I worked with an incredible group of my friends, which made it delightful. But it meant that I followed the women I looked after back onto the labour ward, because you would go wherever your woman. Your woman, ha ha ha, wherever like the woman that was assigned to you um, would go. And what I actually found was even more pain because then I would know women, really know them. And mm-hmm. it was actually in the birth of a dear friend of mine who, at the beginning of her pregnancy, we were friends but we were kind of acquaintances more so and over her pregnancy during COVID we did all the things you weren't supposed to do I did her appointments in her garden we ate food together we sat in the sun when she was having a difficult time I'd come over in the evenings and we'd cry and we'd talk and we'd laugh at her baby moving and
1: this was an assigned client through NHS
2: so she was actually a uh, someone I knew outside of uh, the NHS, and she told me she was pregnant. And you can choose your midwife in the NHS, or you can ask to move midwives. And I just said, "Oh well, we already know each other. If you'd like, I'd love to be your midwife. If you know, you- you'd like me to be." And that's how it how it kind of was created. And it was the first time I developed love for. A woman that I was working with real after how many years that would have been three 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 and a half and the hero was strong in that one (laughs) I was like no she's healthy first baby I really tried to convince her to birth at home but it's not my choice at the end of the day she was like no I want a birth in hospital in you know on the birth center and It was
3: her birth changed
2: me in that I realised it didn't matter how much I loved the woman. It didn't matter how much time I spent with her in pregnancy, how much I tried to educate or protect her from the hospital, from the staff, advocate for her. When it came to crunch time with her birth, I could not protect her from the culture of medicalized birth. And I participated in that culture. And we, she and I, I've asked for her forgiveness and she and I have talked about it many times, but she's still suffering from the injury she sustained at that birth two years later what happened um
3: what happened a shoulder dystocia
2: that was managed poorly and by by, by me and by the team I say the team, you know, it's, uh, and something so much about the RBK school is taking responsibility, isn't it, for your own actions. But it was, and I have said this to her, it was, um, if it had been me and her on our own in her home, the management would have been different from it just being me, not surrounded by 10 people screaming their heads off. And who knows, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: you know, you never know things could have worked out the same, but maybe not. But I, I don't, I, I have a strong suspicion that it, with different management, she wouldn't have sustained the injury she did.
3: Hmm.
2: So that for me was, that was, that was, that was the big realization of actually my whole premise of being a hero
3: didn't,
2: didn't change the outcome. And and that I was involved in it and the realisation of my involvement. But you were the lead midwife, right? Yeah, yeah. And, well, I wasn't the senior midwife. I was her midwife, but I I wasn't at that point... I wasn't technically the one calling the shots, but I was the one doing everything. So it was, yeah. And she and I have, have... done a lot of healing together with that and she's still a really close friend and she actually gave me a job when I wanted to leave midwifery so that I could leave midwifery so our journeys are still very intertwined but I was I was very traumatized by that experience and actually I left the continuity team with that and I you know I said to him I remember saying to my manager um, crying in her office, you know, I think I need to leave. I think I need to leave my car. I need to have some time. I need to have a break. I need to go on the bank shifts, whatever. And she's, and she rightly or wrongly, uh, probably rightly at the time, said, Look, let's just move you to another team. Let's take you out of continuity. Let's, you know, maybe it was that. Maybe it was the model of working. And I was put in a lovely team, batch traditional you know, model of care where you don't attend the women you know in birth.
1: Which is not not traditional at all.
2: No, exactly, hilarious, but it's called a traditional model in the NHS. Um, And and so I was able to disengage emotionally. I was able to do my job and not get emotionally involved to a high degree with the women. Of course I cared about the women and I did my best
1: in, but, but you're uh, speaking I, to like what it feels like when they feel like your sisters and how that impacts you when you hurt them and when you negatively oh my God, yeah. their birth, their baby, their start to motherhood, long-term you know negative impacts all the way to to serious stuff like birth injuries. Mm. you know, hurting a sister lands as a lot harder to wrap your head around and to justify and to do again than, than the inherent harm of medical midwifery to women that you're not gonna remember.
2: Yeah, and so many colleagues said to me, ex-colleagues said to me, this is why I don't look after friends. This is why I don't look after family. And the reality was is that, as you say, because how many midwives could do the things that they do regularly to someone they love? I've seen obstetricians in the, in, in, when it's their wives giving birth saying, no, can we wait longer? No, can you actually not bring the forceps yet? Because when it's someone you love, you're like, how could I do that to them? How could I put them on this path? I must, you know, this is not, this is going to negatively impact them.
1: Is there Um, a more unethical industry, a branch of the medical paradigm? than this? Like, is there there anything more unethical within this, you know, medical context? Yeah,
2: and and people say to me, like, when they're really uncomfortable with me um, speaking negatively about the NHS, I try and emphasize that I'm speaking about maternity. I'm speaking about a very specific department of the NHS where healthy people walk in, and they come out with trauma, injuries, health problems. If someone's sick, I mean, it's a big topic. It, you know, there's like a an agreed form of treatment within that system. But this is something else. This is the healthy person walking in, the healthy baby going in and coming out not healthy. And yeah, that was the, her, her sweet, you know, her birth was was for me it was the beginning of the end and I think some of my close colleagues knew that but I actually stayed in my job for another year and a half with that disengagement uh, emotionally the disengagement and
1: and all the while for the remaining year and a half you're doing vaginal exams you're breaking bags you're 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 doing all this stuff
2: yeah yeah third stage you know placental drugs and 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 all the antinatals, the prim, primary was antenatal. So the blood pressures and the blood tests and the urinalysis and, you know, all of the, and the booking of scans and all of the sort of bread and butter.
1: So what level mm. of cognitive dissonance are you in? Like knowing it, so when you look back, okay, beginning of the end, when you hurt your friend and then the next year and a half, you're like continuing what it sounds like I guess what I want you to articulate is like what amount of this were you aware of as you were doing it or had you drank the Kool-Aid so deep that you didn't, you didn't unpack this until afterwards? Like where's that line for you this last year and a half? Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. I think I was very aware of it because even at the beginning of that year, I was like, I need to leave. And all of those stories that we tell ourselves of money issues and, recognition and uh, for what status profession I'd worked I'd been and actually before I did my midwifery training I was a maternity care assistant on a postnatal ward so I'd been nine years in total in this system and it was I knew that I needed to leave but I didn't know how and I didn't know how to find the strength or the opportunity to do it and I didn't know what I would do without it so I think I had a lot of awareness and it's actually in this last year that I engaged with the podcast and I actually came across Free Birth Society podcast just after I'd first qualified and I remember listening to an episode And I remember going, whoa. (laughs) I remember going, no, 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 (laughs) no. I remember going... Those evil women! (laughs) I was like, this is too far. This is too extreme. These women are too extreme for me. Uh, It's not my... It's not my thing. And I stopped listening. And And the reason I couldn't listen and the reason I couldn't read Ina May's Spiritual Midwifery, it was all because... Nothing I was reading or listening to had any resonance with what I was seeing. It was a different world. It wasn't real. And it was too painful. It was too painful for me to hear about women having ecstatic births, powerful births, because it did not resemble anything that I was a part of. Uh, So I just blocked it out. And I didn't go back to it. And I gave that book, I gave Spiritual Midwifery away. (laughs) And I didn't listen to the podcast. And it was in that year where I was disengaging emotionally from the job that I went back into the podcast. And of course, you hear it all the time. I just drowned in it. I couldn't stop. And it was really pivotal listening to these women's stories, that it got me to a point of, oh, that's birth, but that's not what I'm involved in. And it just came to a process where I couldn't, I had to hand my notice in. And like I said, this friend of mine offered me a job in her shop, which was amazing. I could pay my bills. and um, What a gift to give me that, that avenue. And up, until, up and right until the end, I, I was lying to myself and to my ex-colleagues of, I just need a break. I just need a couple of months to figure myself out and figure out what I want to do. And um, I want to be a, more a part of looking after my grandparents, which wasn't untrue, but it was, it was I, in my, inside I knew I was never coming back. But to admit that is, obviously, it's huge, right? And, And,
1: and, I mean, who would actually, like, imagine if you were just, like, yeah you know it's just really obvious that we're sabotaging the entire planet and creating cycles of trauma. and I just can't imagine raping women with my fingers you know, for another three more years, and this job's made me not want to have kids and the routine of youth because yes. mental health, oh my God. Just, uh, you know, I'm just ready to move on. like you know, like yeah. what if we call a spade a spade?
2: Yeah exactly uh, would. And that's as you mentioned and, and that is something that we touched on when I did some coaching with you is that from being a student midwife I was so maternal as a child I spent my teenage years talking about and envisioning and imagining this large family for I'm an only child four children being a mother you know birthing my children and it was such a such a a joy to me as a child and teenager imagining this and then I started as a student midwife and then my part my long-term partner we nearly broke up on several occasions because I his dream was to be a father and I was like I can't do it I can't do it I can't put myself through that I can't I don't think I'll ever want to have my own biological children it's not it's not something I can give you and That is probably one of the saddest realizations after leaving, because it was only in leaving and healing that I realized that everything that came to my mind when I was afraid of birth was actually nothing to do with birth. Every thought that I had, it was about what people were gonna do to me and what I was gonna have to endure. And then the inevitable, postnatal depression and psychosis that would occur <laughs> and it was only in leaving that I started to have dreams again of giving birth and realizing that I do want to be a mother and I do want to give birth and it's so it's so amazing to tap back into that and to, to acknowledge that and to acknowledge that that job made me actually I feel robbed me for years and potentially my whole future if this is a desire that I really had and I stayed in that job for another five ten years maybe I never would have children
1: I mean when we met you were still on that tip Mm. you were still working for you were still an NHS midwife and you said two things that that really stood out. You said being an NHS midwife has made me realize I don't want kids, which is kind of encapsulates the whole thing, mm. right? Like nine years of participating in violence and birth. You would be insane to want to have kids. Yeah. right. Like if you hadn't have cracked this code and stepped outside and the other thing you said to me that, that I really remember was, it's almost funny. It's not funny. It's oh, not gosh. What are you going to say? It's, well, I said it to you earlier, but it's, um, you said, you know, I've been a midwife for almost a decade with NHS, and I could not explain to you how birth actually works.
2: Oh, my God, yeah.
1: Okay. If someone put
2: me on the spot, gun to my head, describe <laughs> the physiological process of birth, I, I couldn't I couldn't do it.
1: Right, I couldn't but tell like, you. I just, I need everyone to hear that. <laughs> if you think you're choosing a medical midwife and that they know anything about physiological birth, their literal training is to disrupt it. it their yeah. literal training is to not allow it and don't kid yourself that it's any other way because it's not. And we have an ex-med wife right now, you know, actually admitting to that. Which takes a hell of a lot of guts because I know a lot of medwives who will say it behind closed doors, but not necessarily. Yeah, I could,
2: I could tell you the labor process in the medical system. Yeah, of course. I thought talk, I thought about that all the time. Right. but if you told me to, if you told me to describe it without intervention, I was like, Meh. and it's why I love, right? I love hearing other people talk about it and teach it. Because it's because for so long it was never wasn't something I was discussing. That I'm like I love hearing how different people teach it. I knew that if I left birth alone, it would just happen, but that was not what women were asking me for, or that was not. And I'll have loads of ex-colleagues who'll be like, "Well, I knew what I knew how to describe physiological birth, mm-hmm. like just Felicity with her poor training and you know whatever." <laughs>
1: um, yeah, because you never see it. I mean, I'm trying to have an analogy, but like, you've never, you you don't see it in the system. You literally don't see it in the system. Even a woman coming in with a head between her legs, you know, who, you know, she's still going to be put on the gurney. She's still going to have monitors on. They're still going to have the bright lights. They're still going to try to get her in a gown. They're Mm. still going to, you know, it's still going to be a ton of strangers. They're still going to cut the cord. They're still going to give postpartum pit. They're still going to like, it's still not a physiological birth. You know, and can't even arguably, can it be once a mother's left her den? And I would say no, Mm -hmm. Um, it's not possible because the physiological design requires a certain a certain setup that doesn't happen once you leave.
2: By the end of this time, I was also losing the power over the scripts that I was saying to women in that I was I was losing that energy or that ability to, you know, when women were telling me about stuff that happened to them in the hospital. Um, no matter how much they prepared, no matter how much hypnobirthing, how many classes they did, how much time we spent on their birth plans, um, they would come out of the hospital broken. And I was losing the language to not say to them, that was caused by us. You know, I... You mean you were like... I mean, I, I was losing it was getting the ability harder to... harder
1: for you to keep lying
2: lie yeah and I remember a really poignant moment when I said to some team members one very normal working day um I just said it out loud do you ever feel like you're lying to women and there was silence <laughs> oh, God. one midwife said very quietly mm, I know what you mean but I don't think it was viewed as that I felt like I was lying to people
1: you were yeah, it's not, I I was, I yeah was. it's not it's not a feeling it's not like a suspicion uh, literally I'm not, yeah oh, totally
2: yeah. and I don't want uh, you know women who I have cared for who who are listening to this I don't of course I don't want you to feel like I'm thinking about this in a blasé way now yes I laugh about it but it's because it's so absurd it's and funny. it's because it's so um yeah. It's so extreme.
1: Look, you know, I I assume this is the same for you as it I mean, it was it's different as a doula I wasn't physically causing the the harm and interventions, but I certainly lied and and presented like I could help them, you know, in a way that wasn't ethical or true turns out. But those women that you and I have been a part of sabotaging their births are why we do the work we do today you know it's like to get right with that and it's to not do that anymore and you know I think that's all that we really can have is what we're doing now and that's how we make amends you know for being part of a corrupt toxic evil system you know And that's why I wanted to have you on. And I guess that that's a good a good transition point because I want to make sure we we pause on on some of who are you now and what is the you know sp- please speak to this transition transformation you know pivot point that happens in your life. So you go on dissociating for another year and a half, and then what happens to bring you through to who you are today?
2: Hmm. Well, then I spent a few months doing something else and being like, maybe I'm not meant to work in birth. Maybe that's just not meant for me. And, but I couldn't escape it. I couldn't escape pregnant women and just thinking, just feeling all the feels and the love and you're a goddess and, and wanting to make them know that. And it kept creeping in those thoughts, and I kept listening to the podcasts, and I was planning on coming to Matriarch Rising anyway. I decided that when I was still an NHS midwife, I was like, next year I'm going to that. And, you know, then the posts came up and around the radical birthkeeper school, and that the enrollment was happening, and I devoured many, many video reviews. I spoke to people who'd done it. I paid to hear some people talk about it. Like it was, it was like, wow, there's another way to learn about and be in birth than what I understood. And it just was a full body yes. It was so, I couldn't imagine not saying yes at that point I was like no this is a calling this is a fire in me I I haven't been able to just get rid of this like I thought I could mm-hmm. I remembered what I was feeling when I first thought I knew what midwifery was and I wanted to be a part of it and so I said yes to the RBK school and I honestly can say I would have had no idea how to be in birth Without the school, obviously there are many avenues. There's doula training. There's you know there's other ways to do it. But there was something about understanding birth in power because I'd seen what a lot of doulas did. I'd seen them be a part of the medical system as well. And I remember just thinking, oh man, no, that's that feels even worse. Being in a hospital in an out-of-control birth and you have no authority on any level, <laughs> that felt too
1: extreme. And, But I would, it, I would argue, I would kind of argue that there's lots of ways to be involved in birth. Like there's, there's really the way we teach it or there's being a part of the system.
2: Absolutely.
1: Amen. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you could go take a doula training and just circle right back into the same room you were trying to avoid. Yeah. Like that—that that wouldn't work, right? Yeah. This was you choosing a program with women who who are not a part of the system at all. And yeah. what does that look like, right?
2: That was it. That was my question. Okay, so if I'm not a licensed midwife. Who am I in yeah. this space, and what does birth even look like without a licensed midwife there? I'd well, heard the stories. Ah, <laughs> now you know. Now I know, and I remember my uh, after the. So this first of all, halfway through the school, uh, it get, the the community of women that I experienced in that space and the mentorship from you and yo gave me the strength and the wisdom to let go of my medical license fully. So I wasn't working as a midwife, but I was still registered with this possibility that I could work if I wanted to. And I remember just, I knew it was so obvious that I couldn't have my license anymore, especially if this is how I wanted to work but it was going through my journals that I'd written a year before and seeing how deep the despair was. And then the community of women raising me up that was like, oh, man, there's another way I can get rid of this. So I got rid of the license and I just opened myself up and to the possibility that this, this was for me, this way of being with women was for me and I mean the self-mastery tools yes you know obviously it was a whole reworking on birth but your teaching of the self-mastery tools my mind was blown it because it showed me that I was in control of every aspect of my life if I wanted to be I'd felt I'd felt like everything had been happening to me like it had been happening to the women that go into these hospitals and and there was no sense of any there's anything good for me that every, everything good for me is not, not something I create, it's just going to happen or it's not totally. And I mean, that's it what was, it's all part, yeah, yeah. And I opened myself up, and I I just remember being a part of the free, uh, the free birth UK Facebook group, and a woman in her third trimester. Had a, a baby that was presenting breach and she's a single mum, and she was had put a post on saying, "I've just put this birth pool up, and there's a puncture in it. There's a puncture, and my doula, who I thought was going to be with me, can't be with me anymore. And I'm just, and now my baby's breach. Is it just a sign that I shouldn't do this? Is the universe just telling me that I just shouldn't do this? Shouldn't do this free birth. And I, I just commented some love. I didn't say anything about me doing the school or having knowledge of birth. I just sent some love and and opened out connection to someone who understandably was doubting if this birth that she dreamed of was, was for her. And then she reached out and two days after the school finished, she had invited me to witness her birth outside of the medical system, and it was the biggest gift. <laughs> I, I just, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it.
1: Okay, how terrified were you to go I'm to, so a brief, ter- <laughs> to a breach? To i to this. She was scared. So,
2: I had one day where I had a complete meltdown. Uh-huh. But what that was. Actually, I just, you know, I describe it now as a meltdown, but it wasn't. It was the expression of my fear. Sure. And if we, look, we were looking at it, if I was looking at it through the tools and the tools helped me navigate this, of right, okay, what does this look like to feel this all the way to completion? And I had this day where I felt that deep fear and that core fear and I expressed it and I moved through it and then it was gone. And it was just excitement in its place. And lo and behold, everyone, (laughs) drum roll. She had her footling breech baby at home, in water, undisturbed. No fingers in bodies, no drugs in bloodstreams. And, I mean, she was a powerful woman in that she had cancelled her C-section that had been booked for her before she even spoke to me, but to claim it was was amazing, and yeah, just incredible, and no going back, no going back
1: after you've seen that <laughs> for real. Oh, I just got Yeah, there's no going back for real.
2: <laughs> yeah, and it felt really powerful to draw the line as well of because there are so many birth workers who will work with women wanting to achieve physiological birth, but with medical professionals, drawing the line that I, I'm not going to be working with people, with women who are choosing to birth in the system. You know, I, I, I am here for women who are wanting to birth in power autonomously outside of the system and not have a licensed professional present. That's where my it felt very powerful in a country where we have free healthcare and it's so automatic and so accessible, so much so that it feels like a, an inevitability. Of course, I'm going to have pregnancy care and birth at the NHS. It feels, feels very powerful not being
1: a part of that. Yeah, and being an option for something else, which will literally make it less automatic for some of these women. Yeah. When there's other options, I mean, it's the same thing here. It's like the only thing that's going to slow down the automation of this assembly line is other options,
2: right? Yeah. So will
1: give women pause and be like, oh, okay. So there are other other ways to do this. So, so anything you want to share about, then you go on to attend to other births. And mm-hmm. what is it like now to be practicing, learning how to practice authentic midwifery and, and being in your actual integrity in birth work. I mean for the first time in a decade. That's a really yeah. big deal. Mm.
2: Emily, it is so much fun. <laughs> <I'll death. laughs> I am having I am so I am having so much fun. I am so, it is so joyful. And don't get me wrong, there's deep reflection, even where births unfold. Really, you know automatically I don 't know what the best word to say, like even pretty pretty uneventful birth. I feel like everything that I experience with this energetically just goes inside my body and creates amazing things for the future, my life now, and I've probably had the most difficult four months of my life with my father being really unwell but i wonder i think to myself wow i wonder if this had happened while i was still working as an nhs midwife how i would feel about all of this because birth the energy that this birth in power has created has just filtered into every other part of my life money health death processing my relationship with my partner what we're choosing, what you choose to do with your life. It's, it's so fun. It's so empowering. And it was a massive leap. And people, you know, some people, a few people say to me like, oh, you've got so much courage. Like that's so courageous and brave what you did. And, and yeah, when you look at the black and white, yeah, it was, but wow, it's just there's so many gifts Mm -hmm. even in the even in the challenging things I'm finding so many gifts and that's what's so joyful and fun about it it's not all sweetness and light but it that's what's the what's the joy is that now that those tools that the school taught me that community of women is where is the gift in this and it's so yeah it's it's so powerful
1: Mm. (laughs) yeah okay so one last question Hmm. when are you going to have a baby?
2: <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. I just was like, oh my God, she's going to ask me when I'm going to have a baby. Um, Any time now. <laughs> I, I could be pregnant this very second, which would be exciting. But oh. I'm just, like with everything, I'm just opening myself up to, and I'm actually now excited to give birth. I'm so excited. And I couldn't have
3: imagined that. Right. Again.
2: So yeah, it feels very joyful.
1: Wow. There's so much in that, you know, there's so much in that that industrial birth squashed that in you, in so many women. And then to leave it and see wild birth and support your sisters in integrity will turn you you know back it will reconnect you to your maternal zest you know and that you will become a mother now and that's really that's quite again that i mean that really encapsulates a lot of what this work is about and how how huge it is because this is happening for a lot of women around the world you know it's this your story is a lot of women's story stories and it's yeah It really just encapsulates the movement, I think, in so many ways. Because you are a part of this revolution, you know, and the women you will serve are a part of it. And it's just so epic. Yeah. Yay! 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 (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for your time. Oh, and how can women find you if they're in England and they're all jazzed up about what um so my
2: instagram is felicity in birth and that's where i'm having a lot of fun at the moment chatting away um you've got my website felicityinbirth.com um i'm going to be in the warm brazil atmosphere over christmas and new year but ready and raring back in january Um, twenty-three. So yeah, just message me whenever, ladies. I
1: love to chat. (laughs) Awesome. Hey, I'll see you in June. (laughs) See you then. (laughs) And that's it for today, my sisters. Check out everything we do, including one-on-one and group coaching. Learn about our private membership, in-person retreats, and more on FreeBirthSociety.com. Our online courses are on FreeBirthSocietyCourses.com, including our flagship course, The Complete Guide to Free Birth. Don't miss the Radical Birthkeeper School if you're ready to become the authentic midwife that women are searching for. Together we rise, and the revolution starts inside each of us. I'll leave you with our Free Birth Society theme song, "Wild Woman" by Aruba Red. I
0: honour you for the wisdom you held, the ancient traditions of plant medicine and womb magic. I feel the spirit of the ancestors as I place my hands upon my belly. This sacred portal will be honoured. Eons upon light beams of survival, withstanding the eradication of our power by design. I will not allow the separation of our young to be forced upon me My sisters will no longer birth in captivity The picket line redefined from burning our wild women to paralysing us and drugging our babes Strapped down in a clinical white bed drying up the milk from our breasts Keep your needles My family will never again be doomed to chase those dragons or your poison We reject it Ascension. I will fly and bring her back from the stars.